Welcome to the Zion Church Podcast. We are a church that is passionate about bringing heaven to earth by following Jesus, who demonstrated perfect Christianity. We hope you are blessed by this teaching from Josh Wood. The last few weeks, uh, I've been teaching on, on stepping into the promised land. And, uh, and we've, got a, we've got a bit of a ministry time, mega ministry time, we called it. So if you've come here for prayer, uh, we want to pray for you. In fact, we have a prayer team on standby, and we would love to pray for everyone in this room and get the word of the Lord for everyone here. Because you know that Jesus is called the word. Who knows that Jesus has thoughts about you? He has things to say over your life. And so, so we want to jump in the river of his heart and his love uh, this afternoon. There it is. I said it again, huh? This afternoon. And we want to hear God for you. We want to bless you and encourage you. And who knows that prophecy is important? In fact, Jesus said that man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's the rhema word of God. That's what God's saying right now. So this is what we're going to do is I'm going to start off. Uh, we've been reading Numbers 13. We probably won't, won't go there today. But the, the past couple of weeks, I'll just give you just a little bit of a overview. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the, the reality that uh, there are things in the Old Testament that the Bible says are types and shadows. They're prophetic symbols, prophetic types of New Testament, or New Covenant realities. And so one of those things is the promised land, which is what we've been talking about. The fact that the promised land for the Israelites is a type and a shadow of the promised life of the New Covenant. And we've talked all about that. I don't want to rehash that about the different, the two different bodies of water they went through and the two different uh, baptisms that symbolizes baptism of water, baptism of the Spirit. And they needed both to be able to not just exit Egypt, to enter into the promised land. Yeah, so we, we looked at how that is a uh, prophetic symbol of the finished work of Christ. We looked at that in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It talks all about it. It's incredible. It talks about how God wanted to bring them into his rest. So it says that the rest of God was finished from the foundation of the world. And it says that the Israelites couldn't enter not because of the will of God, but because of their unbelief. It's the only reason. They couldn't enter because of unbelief. And we know that unbelief is also the very thing that stops us as New Covenant believers from entering the promised life. So last week, we looked a little bit about uh, understanding what faith is, what faith isn't, and unbelief itself. Today, I kind of want to uh, pick up where I left off last Sunday and just finish off this little series by talking about the renewing of the mind. So kind of understanding, like I said, uh, finishing off understanding what unbelief is, how do we get unbelief out of our life, how do we be people that live by faith, and what that process is in the context of the renewing of the mind. So good to see you, Rach. It's been a long time. <laughs> I'm making a laugh. Yeah. Oh, yes, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Um, but before I do, before we really get started, <laughs> I'm going to ask Jen up if she would come up and share some amazing testimonies of things that God's been doing in the last few weeks, just so far this year. Go for it. Yeah. yeah it's exciting, isn't it? I love what Jesus does. Wherever you are, he's there. Yeah. 
and uh, at my workplace, one of my girlfriends came and she said that she had uh, cancer and was in a really, really bad way. And so I just said, hey, well, how about, can I pray for you? You know, can we just, I believe in the healing power of God and he just wants to bring healing. Okay, she said. So she went to the doctor and then she went to have the procedure and looking at the report, what have you done? It's not there. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do the procedure because it's not there. What did you do? And just another one? Yeah, and there was just another one. You know, the, I love going to the dog park because I have a dog. <laughs> Appropriate. But uh, it's amazing what God does no matter who, no matter where you are, whether it's at work or, or whatever, but even at the dog park. And you get to know people and this guy I was talking with, he'd been in intensive care and it was all really bad and blah, 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 and God spared his life, even though we didn't realise it. And he had a bad back and I just said, hey, well, look, I believe in the healing power of God. I know that might sound crazy, but I just believe he wants to bring healing. Can I pray for you? Yeah, it all happens at the dog park. So I just prayed for him and then, yeah, next week, how's your back? It is completely better. He said, oh, it's my whole body, he said just the top bit is a little bit sore, but the, it was pain throughout my body. And it was just beautiful to share the Father's heart with him. So good. Everywhere you go, there Jesus is. I love it. It's true. Actually, this last Thursday night at the Kingdom Living School, we were looking at what it means to be an ambassador of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is. And it's so great hearing those testimonies and uh, we want to continue to encourage you to step out be bold have faith in God and watch God do amazing things through you so so today um, this afternoon honey uh, (laughs) we're going to start off in Romans chapter 12 if you have a Bible if you want to turn to Romans chapter 12 and we're going to read just a couple of verses there I'm sure you most of you are familiar with those two verses And we're going to continue to look at understanding faith and unbelief, how to live by faith, how to get unbelief out of our lives. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a great passage right there. So he's encouraging us by the mercies of God to present. It's amazing. He doesn't just say your mind. He, he doesn't even just say your spirit, but he says present your bodies. We're going to look at that shortly. Why does he say your bodies? What has this got to do with the renewing of your mind? What does this mean? Which is your reasonable service. This is the very least of what we can do is to present ourselves, our, our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And then this encouragement and really a commandment, don't be conformed to this world. You know, this is really important. In fact, Revelation talks about it as well, about coming out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon. 
And we see that all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that God is calling His people to not look like the world. He's calling us to be different. You know, that's what the word holy means. Holy means set apart. It's different. So God is calling us to be a holy people. We're called to be in the world, we know, but not of the world. And this is how the transformation happens, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Why? So that we may prove or approve, or so the Greek can be translated, what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. You know, we say it over and over again. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. There's none like you. And then he, he went on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you know that your life is meant to be the fulfillment of that prayer? Your life is supposed to look like heaven on earth. How do we get there? How do we show the world what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is, it's through the journey of having our mind renewed and presenting our bodies to God wholly acceptable as a living sacrifice. You know, it's amazing that that word there in the Greek where it says, but be transformed, but be transformed. It's actually the Greek word metamorpho. And it's actually the very same word used in Matthew 17 when Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. He was metamorphosed before them. So what was on the inside, the reality of who he was, began to shine even through his pores and even through his clothes. Takes us back to we look at Moses and Moses saw God on Mount Sinai. We actually caught a glimpse of God's back when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. But he came down from the mountain and his face, his face was literally shining with the glory of God. So much so that the children of Israel couldn't even look at him. Put a veil over that thing, Moses. We can't even look at you. So those two examples are essentially a, a symbol for us, a prophetic symbol, prophetic uh, type from Moses, but Jesus, the full manifestation of that reality of the life that we're supposed to live. That us as human beings, us as children of God, sons and daughters of God, with the king, the king and his kingdom on the inside, our very being is supposed to look different. It's supposed to glow and shine with the glory of God. So that people see you and they're like, man, I don't know what it is. There's just something different about you. Who's ever heard someone say that to you, maybe at work or somewhere else? I don't know what it is. You're not like everyone else. There's just something about you. Sometimes people see it in your face. They see your face and they're like, there's just something different in your eyes. It's that metamorpho. It's the kingdom of God manifesting through your body. Transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's actually the same word, uh, way, uh, word, sorry, that we get the word metamorphosis from. That's why it's so closely related. It's the word that we explain a butterfly when it starts its life as a caterpillar. It goes into chrysalis and it, there's a metamorphosis. There's a transforming. It turns into something different. 
We looked at when we uh, when we're talking about the promised land, and I mentioned it this morning about there are giants in the promised land. You know, part of this renewing of our mind, you know, it, it really is uh, is what we would understand as revelation. You know, we know that word revelation. We're pretty familiar with that. Re- revelation is revealed truth. Revelation is is you seeing something the way that God sees it. Revelation is when you begin to see reality the way that God sees reality. That's why Joshua and Caleb, unlike the other spies, the 12 spies that went into the promised land in Numbers 13, 10 of them came out and said, there are giants. We were like grasshoppers in our own side, and so we were in their side. But Joshua and Caleb saw the exact same land, the exact same cities, and the exact same giants. And they said, yeah, there are giants. So what? God has given them to us, and we are well able to, uh, to overcome them and take this promised land. We talked about, I, I mentioned this, I think it was last week, that we... It, as our minds renewed, we begin to see that the giant is never our problem. Circumstances are not my problem. The fire wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's problem. It wasn't their problem at all. In fact, God used the fire to burn off the thing that had them in bondage. You know that. The only thing that burned in the fire was the thing that bound them, the ropes that bound them. And they came out of the fire in Daniel chapter 3, they came out of the fire and they didn't even smell like smoke. It's amazing. The fire is not your problem. The storm is never your problem. I mentioned this, I know for a fact, last week, last Saturday afternoon, wasn't the morning, it was the afternoon. I'm continuing trying to remind myself here. Sorry, did I say, I said Sunday. Saturday, there you go. I've got the, I've got the time of day right, but I just the day's wrong. You didn't even notice? Me neither, cat. <laughs> Last Sunday afternoon, I talked about Jesus being in the storm and that even, even though he was in the same storm as the disciples, they were freaked out and thought they were going to die, but Jesus was fast asleep. He was fast asleep. The storm is never your problem. Now, I, uh, I want to... I want you to have a look at something here with me in, in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to skip over to Matthew 17 just after that. Now, I kind of touched on some of this in closing last uh, Sunday afternoon. I'm just keeping you guys on your toes. I'm giving you something to do. Keeping me honest. Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to read uh, verse 20, 21 down to 23. And as I mentioned, I mentioned this last week, and it's just kind of in passing as I was finishing, but I want us to really dig into this for a moment, and then we're going to move forward. So Matthew 16, verse 21 to 23, it says this here, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. This is the same Peter who just said in a few verses prior, he, he got the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus congratulated him, said, Peter, 
Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven, well done. You've got a revelation. You're hearing God. You're hearing the Father. And then a few verses later, Peter's rebuking Jesus, saying, Lord, this shall never happen to him. Never happened to you. Now think about this for a moment. Here's Peter. He's been living with Jesus. We don't know how, for how many years at this stage. It looks like it's towards the end of the journey. So maybe at least two, three years he's been living with Jesus. Imagine walking around every day with Jesus. Wouldn't that just be the best? They're getting to see all of this stuff firsthand with their own eyes. They're getting to experience it. They're like, Jesus, you're the best. We are so blessed. We get to hang out with you. And then one day Jesus gets up and says, hey, guys, I'm going to die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a minute. No, no way. No, Jesus. That can't happen. You can see that Peter's motive was right, wasn't it? It it wasn't evil, rather. It wasn't a, a, a selfish or a prideful motive, so to speak. His motive was he loved Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to die. It seemed right. But the reality is, is that it wasn't the wisdom of heaven. Let's read on and see what Jesus said. But he turned and said, said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Ouch! You are an offense to me. Why? For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Now, imagine in your quiet time, you're praying and you're talking to the Lord and all of a sudden he says to you, Eden, get behind me, Satan. You would be a little bit offended. In fact, you might put it in a category of things Jesus wouldn't say or do, but he said it to Peter. What is he, what's the point that he's trying to make? He's not just trying to upset Peter. He's trying to rattle him and say, Peter, your thinking is rooted in hell. What you're saying, it might seem right. It might seem a good idea, but I want you to know that my father didn't give you this revelation. The devil did. It's a bit of a shock factor right there. Get behind me, Satan. It's incredible what the Lord says. He, he describes exactly what he means why what is he saying get behind me Satan what how did how did this thought enter uh, Peter's mind he says for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men now that is our clue right there that's our key he's saying Peter your mind is full and it ain't full of God's thoughts He doesn't even say at that point in time, he doesn't say your mind is full of the things of Satan. He says your mind is full of the things of men. What is your mind full of? What is your mind full of, friends? Is it full of the things of God? Or is it full of the things of of Satan, the things of this world? It says here in, uh, in James chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 13. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. James 3, 13. It's, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. He's saying it's not just about your works, but it's about what's going on in your heart, what's really going on inside the heart of yours. He says, this wisdom, verse 15, does not descend from above, 
but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So he begins to describe, James begins to describe and to break down what heavenly wisdom looks like in comparison to earthly wisdom. And he hits the same nail on the head that Jesus did with Peter is he said that uh, the wisdom of this earth, the wisdom of this age is it's earthly, it's sensual, so it's driven by the senses and at its heart, it's demonic, demonic wisdom. The wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. That's what's going on inside of each of us. And the process of the renewing of our mind is God taking away and stripping away all of the things that have been built up and stored up in our hearts and in our mind that's not of heaven but it's of the earth and at its heart it's actually demonic if you want to turn with me to matthew chapter 17 i'm just going to read a few verses here and i'll just and then i'm going to begin to preach a little bit about this talk about it matthew chapter 17 verse 17 through to 20 I love to keep it Bible-based, all right? So you can see it's not just my idea, but it's his idea. It's the Word of God, not just the Word of Josh. It's not quite as good. (laughs) Matthew 17. So I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to kind of build from here, okay? But I want to break it down for you a little bit. Matthew 17, verse 17. This is the only time in the Gospels where someone turns up for healing and doesn't get healed straight away. The only time. The disciples couldn't do it. And this is what Jesus said to them. Verse 17, he said, O faithless, if you want, you can underline that word. We're going to come back to that in a minute. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Bring the boy to me. Jesus said, I'm only here for a little while longer, guys. How long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? I'm not going to be here soon. You've got to get this. Because very soon I'm not going to be here to bow you out. Bring him here to me. He goes on and it says there that uh, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. You can imagine they're a little embarrassed. And said, I've done this. When I've gone to pray for people, have not seen it happen? And go to the secret place, Lord. Why couldn't I do it? Why could we not cast it out? Now, there's only one reason, only one reason here that Jesus gives. It's the same reason that's given in Hebrews 3, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 that we read. Why couldn't they enter the promised land? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
So we talked a little bit more about that faith last week. But I, what I want to do right now is I just want us in this little passage, I want to give you the Greek words for faithless, for perverse, and for unbelief. So we understand what the Lord is really talking about here. So when the Lord says faithless, he doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. I've talked about that last week. If you missed it, I'm sorry. We'll probably put a recording up at some point. Um, but, but this is the word. It's the word apistos, which means actively disbelieving without Christian faith. Untrustworthy. That's an interesting, interesting uh, translation. Faithless, an incredible thing. Infidel, it can also be translated, or unbeliever or unbelieving. Here's a, here's a few of the ways that it's translated. That, that believe not, unbelieving, faithless, unfaithful, without trust in God, epistos. Last week we talked about, uh, we looked at rather how God has given to each of us the measure of faith. We looked at in the Greek that when it says that, that it's talking about every one of us has been given enough faith. Even Jesus says here what we just read. He says that if we have faith as a mustard seed, we will move a mountain. So Jesus isn't saying to them, guys, you don't have enough faith. Because he, he's telling two different stories then. He can't say you just need faith as size of a mustard seed to move a mountain and then say, well, you didn't do it because you didn't have enough faith. That's not what he's talking about. They had enough faith, but they also had too much unbelief. Let's look at the word for faithless. Here, faithless, we looked at perverse. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, unbelieving, doubting generation, perverse. It says this, uh, distorted, misinterpret, morally corrupt, perverse to distort, to turn aside, to oppose, to plot against the saving purposes and plans of God. It also means to turn aside from the right path. So I'm reading to you, if you have a Strong's Concordance, I'm reading to you the Strong's uh, definition of these, of these Greek words. To turn aside from the right path. I mentioned it last week. So in, in some of the, uh, the Gospels, they use the word crooked, crooked and perverse generation. Something that, that's crooked, it's not straight. He says, you're not seeing reality the way that I see reality. There's a perversion to the way that you see life and the way you see in this situation. For something to be perverse or to be perverted means you're not seeing it the way that you're supposed to. He says to them here, you couldn't do it because of your unbelief. Unbelief, that word is apistia. It can also be translated as, in a few words as unfaithfulness. That's interesting. Unfaithfulness, faithless, wanting of faith, unbelief, disobedience. Now, we looked at the words for faith last week. We also looked at the words for, uh, for, for doubting. The fact that the word to doubt, it means to be double-minded. So to be double-minded means, well, I, th I think that God wants to heal people. Well, I know that He likes to heal people, but at the same time, I'm not really sure if He will in this situation. 
So I'm going into a situation to pray for someone and I've got two minds. I'm double-minded. Now, we might call that in some circles wisdom, but the Bible calls that double-mindedness and it calls it doubt. And it says that that's actually not God's will, that we're meant to get that out of us. Because the word faith, the word pistis, means to be fully convinced, unwavering. I've settled in my heart that God is always in a good mood, that it is always His will to heal people. So when I go to pray for healing, I'm not standing there thinking two different thoughts. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. Let's pray and find out. I'm fully convinced. Fully convinced. Well, I want to share a quick testimony with you. I actually have the video of this. I was hoping to be able to play it today, but uh, we couldn't do this. But one time I was in Japan on mission. I love Japan. Watashi wa Nihonga daisuke desu. And God has uh, put Japan in my heart. And I'm going to continue to go there as, as things open up to, to preach the gospel and, uh, and, and do some, some things in there for the kingdom. But I've been to Japan for ministry a number of times. We've also been there as a family. In fact, the last time we were in Japan, uh, we were at the busiest uh, train station uh, in the world, I forget, it's like over a million people pass through that sub, that station every day. And, uh, and we, we were there and the, the boys, we had a, um, Elise and the boys and I were there and we had a, a TV crew come up to us and say, hey, can we interview you? We're interviewing tourists and asking them, you know, what they think of, uh, what they think of Tokyo. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. So they begin to interview us and they're asking us questions. And of course, they begin to ask, you know, so what, what's brought you to, to Japan? And then, of course, what's the answer they're going to get? Jesus. So Jesus is the reason why. Anyway, it turned out that the cameraman had, had, a, had bad knees and he had pain as he, was, as he was filming. We convinced him to pass the camera to someone else. And, and our two boys got down on their knees. We got the photos of, of this, this one. And they put their hands on each knee and began to pray and call down the kingdom. And all of a sudden, this big smile crossed this man's face and his knees were completely healed. And then all of a sudden, they're wanting to find out about Jesus and we got to share the gospel with them. That's the second time that we've been on, on, uh, on TV. They're actually uh, one time, be another trip before that. So James, who's in, in the room right now, Jima, so good to see you, buddy. Wow. So James and uh, my dad, Mike, who's here. Where are you, dad? He was here. He's been raptured. He's up the back. Uh, you left before me. You left without me. <laughs> so, and we also had another friend, Grant, who was with us. We had been ministering in, uh, in Japan, and we had just come back from Okinawa. Now, that's a whole other long story. I have to share that sometime, but God... Uh, sent, sent me by a word to Okinawa and uh, we just got back. We flew in from Okinawa through Osaka. We caught a connecting flight through Osaka up to Tokyo. I had a, a trucker's cap on with a tag sticking out. I'd been unshaven. I was tired. We just had this trip. We were right at the end of the trip. We we're literally going home. And we're waiting for our connecting flight from Tokyo uh, to to, to uh, back to Brisbane or the Gold Coast, wherever it was. Anyway, so we're in this airport and we see another film crew. This is a few years beforehand and they're filming a show in Japan. It's actually pretty famous. I don't know the Japanese name, but it's called Why Did You Come to Japan? And they go to the airport and interview foreigners and ask them, why did you come to Japan? So, so we got interviewed and we decided not only to tell them, but to show them because who knows that it's a show and tell gospel. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. 
For the kingdom of God is not in word, or not in word only, depending on your translation, but in power. So anyway, it turned out that he had lower back pain. We got him to sit down. You remember this, guys? We're going to sit down on the on the uh, one of the benches there at the airport, and we're going to sit down, put his back up against the chair. And it turned out that one leg was shorter than the other. So the cameraman comes in, and he's over my shoulder. I'm down there with you know his his heels in each hand, and made sure the cameraman could see from every which angle, and then commended his leg to grow and. Um, it just shot out, like shot out. The cameraman was like, whoa, like this. And he's filming it. He gets up and he's asking questions. And this is what he says, like, I'm not prepared at all. Okay. This is an as you go gospel. I wasn't like, I had, you know, my sermon prepared or anything like that. He, He asked me this question. He says, so tell me about Jesus. Is he a good man? And then puts the microphone in, in my face and the camera in my face. And I'm like, help Holy Ghost. What do I say right now to Japan? Uh, and so anyway, I got to share about Jesus and about his reality. And then in Japanese, I got to look down the barrel of the, the camera. And I, my Japanese is a bit rusty, but um, uh, oh my gosh. I was going to try and say it in Japanese, but I'm rusty. I won't even go there. But to say Jesus loves you in Japanese, down the, down the barrel of the, of the gun of the camera to the Japanese people watching, it was amazing. And, and afterwards, we, we found out that the producer who was there, the line producer, uh, she had a little crucifix around her neck. And sometimes people do that in Japan because it's a fashion statement. But it turned out she was a believer in a country where maybe like 1% or less are believers. The producer who was doing the translating as a Christian, Japanese Christian, translated everything that I said to the camera in perfectly as I said it. Didn't change anything. It was amazing. And so anyway, she said, I'm a Christian too. And she began to tell us that she studied film in Canada and got saved and come back to Japan. But it was just beautiful. Uh, that wasn't even the testimony, Japanese testimony I was going to share, but that was a good one anyway. Uh, where was I going? Uh, yeah, belief. So when you've got a camera pointed at you and you're saying to them, watch this, this is going to be amazing. His leg gro- is going to grow out. I'm not just saying that thinking, oh, I'm saying that because I'm fully convinced. I'm fully convinced that God, not only it's His will, not only can He do it, but He's about to do it. Why? Because He actually already did it. He already paid the price. Now I just have to give it away. I remember one time I was at a church, um, Australia for Christ Fellowship, I think is the full name, ACF down in Roeville, in, uh, down near Melbourne. Victoria, I remember ministering one time. There was a massive church, over a thousand people. And, uh, and anyway, uh, I called for people at the front who had one leg shorter than another. Sometimes you might get a couple of people. There was like 40 people, like the whole front row of the church sort of thing, all these people. And I went along one after another and grew their legs out. Some shot out, some came out slow, some were a bit stubborn. So I had to like put it in its place, tell it what to do. So excuse the pun there. But anyway, but, but, you know, God wants us to be people who are fully convinced. So anyway, let's continue to, to read on here. What we're we talking about, renewing of the mind, unbelief. Now, what I find fascinating is that faith and unbelief are not only translated in the sense of believing, but are also translated in the sense of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You see, because faith isn't just a thought, it's not just thinking a certain way, but faith is the way that we live. Remember, we talked about last week, the just shall live by what? By faith, all right? Now, that's not just 
believing God for a miracle and walking around believing for that miracle, but it's the lifestyle in which we live. That's why, but like I mentioned, both faith and unbelief are translated as faithfulness and unfaithfulness. That's why I believe that in Romans chapter 12, he says, therefore, present your bodies to God holy and acceptable as living sacrifices. And then he goes on to talk about the renewing of your mind. Don't think like the rest of the world think. You've got to think like God thinks. And that is the renewing of your mind that you may show people what God's will looks like. So when we're talking about faith and unbelief and, and how to live by it, the way that we live our life shows what we really believe. It's like I can say that, hey, God's going to, you know, heal this person or heal me or whatever. But if all of a sudden I'm going out and I'm making plans, I'm buying a funeral plot and all this kind of stuff, but I'm saying God's healed me, do my actions or do my works line up with what I'm saying I believe? Now, I understand that might be a touchy subject for people, and, and, but the reality is, is if we want to walk in the fullness, we've got to be honest about this stuff. We've got to be able to look at this stuff, all right? We've got to be real with ourselves. In my journey of growing and, and getting to this place of, you know, I'm still growing up. I'm not there yet, all right? I'm still growing. But in my journey of maturing in the Lord, I've had to get pretty real with myself sometimes. You know, I've laid hands on three dead people and I haven't seen any of them rise again. Now, according to Jesus, it's not their fault. They're not laying there thinking this ain't going to happen. They're not thinking anything. I don't mean to be crude, but I can't blame their unbelief. They're dead. But Jesus told me to raise the dead. He didn't say raise the dead and there's a little asterisk and you go down the special conditions at the bottom. He said, raise the dead. Who knows that Smith Wigglesworth, his wife died. He rose, brought her back from the dead. And she said, Smith, I want to go and be with Jesus. Why'd you bring me back? She closes her eyes and goes again. He brings her back again. She's like, Smith, you need to let me go. I want to be with Jesus. But if we were in that position and we're thinking, yeah, but what if they don't want to come back? Yeah, but what happens? Da, 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 da. And we might be saying the right things. And we might be believing that it's possible, but if we've got a resume of other things, other thoughts in our mind of why it might not happen, the Bible calls that double-mindedness. And in fact, James says, let that man expect they're going to receive anything from the Lord. All right? So there's a cleansing of the heart. There's a cleansing of the mind, a changing of the mind. How does it happen? How do you renew your mind then? Okay, so if we understand that God sees reality a certain way and in the earthly sense, without God's help, we don't see reality the way that God does. How do we go from seeing ourselves, seeing people, seeing a certain situation earthly, sensually, really at its heart demonic, how do we go from that to seeing things the way that God sees it? It's a great question. Thanks for asking it, by the way. <laughs> so this is the process of the renewing of the mind. I want to read to you a verse here. You can turn there if you want, but it's found in Ephesians chapter 5. How are we going for time? Pretty good. Thank you, Jesus. He's always, he's always calling. He's my, my screensaver on my phone, calling me to follow him. Yes, Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. So this is a great passage, husbands love your wives. It starts off sounding like he's just talking to us husbands, but in fact, he's talking about Christ and the bride. Let's listen to what he said. 
Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, how? With the washing of the water by the word. He's talking about Christ and the church now. It's not talking about husbands and wives. Let me read that again. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, set apart, and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church. That's what we want to be, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that he, but that she rather should be holy and without blemish. Now here we come back to not just about believing in our minds or even in our heart, but it's about the way that we live our lives. That's a big deal to God, holiness. In fact, the Bible says that without holiness, it says in the New Testament, without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. So this journey of growing in faith and, and getting out of this place of unbelief is, is also the journey of holiness, presenting our minds, presenting our wills, uh, presenting our emotions, presenting our bodies even holy and acceptable to Him as a living sacrifice. You know what, God, I don't understand this situation right now, but I know that you said this. You know, God, I might be feeling this way. I might be feeling anger right now, sadness, whatever. But Jesus, you said this. You know, right now I might be feeling this temptation in my body, this sensual desire. But Jesus, you said this. Holy and acceptable. Faithfulness. He does it by the washing of the water, of water rather, by the word. I'm going to kind of finish it up now but I want to talk a little bit about this is that, you know, it says here, it's, it's amazing. Uh, the washing of water by the word. Has anyone ever seen that analogy uh, where someone will talk about maybe you'll get a, a glass of dirty water. I'm sure we've probably all seen this before. Glass of dirty water. It's water. It's got dirt in it. You could, try all your life to try and pick out every speck of dirt, every microscopic molecule of dirt in that glass of water, but you're not going to be able to do it. The way you get dirty water out of the glass in that analogy is you pour enough clean water in and not all the dirty water goes out. So what is that clean water then? It's the Word of God. So we know that Jesus is the living word. In the beginning, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. Logos is the Greek word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. I say it all the time. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. Jesus doesn't just know the way. He doesn't just know the truth. He actually is the truth. He is truth. He doesn't just know the word, he actually is the word, all right? So there's two Greek words that we use for words, for word in the New Testament. And it's the words logos, two main words, the words logos and the words, the word rhema, okay? So they can both be looked at in different ways, but really just to break it down, 
make it really simple. And again, they can both be interpreted slightly differently. So give me some grace, cut me some slack. But ultimately, logos can be looked at as what God's already said. It's the written word. It's what's written in stone, all right? Rhema is the freshly spoken word of God. It's what God's saying right now. So you can open up the Bible, and this is what we call the word of God. God has already spoken these things. You can read something. You can read a promise in here that he spoke thousands of years ago, and you can believe it, and you can see it manifest in your life today. That's how powerful it is. But you can also hear the rhema word of God. You can hear what God's speaking to you right now in this moment, whether to your heart, to your mind, your imagination, however God speaks to you through a prophetic word, through a third party, and you can bank your life on that word. You can believe God and you can see that thing manifest in your life. It's the word of God. Now, I would argue that all of the word of God, written or spoken, it's all freshly spoken. It's all it's a, all a now word. It's the word of God. But this is how we renew our mind. And what, the reason why I'm, I'm pulling out these, these, two, uh, these two different words is this. Because it's not just Bible knowledge, guys. It's not about just reading this book and filling your head with a bunch of memory verses. That's not the water, or, uh, the washing of the water of the Word, okay? It's supernatural. It's a supernatural impartation. So why Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So the very words that Jesus spoke as he was speaking to them, and I believe even as I'm speaking today, because it's the word of God that something supernatural is happening inside of you. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about when you pray. In verse 5, he says, But you, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. I'll reiterate this again. I know Paul will give me a thumbs up. There's nothing wrong with praying on the streets. Jesus did it all day, every day. What's wrong is doing it to be seen by men. And he says they have their reward. What, are they, what were they wanting, looking for? What did they want? To be seen by men. What did they get? They got seen by men. They, got, they have their reward. But he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now just pause there for a minute. So, so this, is, this is the deal, is that that process of the renewing of the mind doesn't just come by memorization of information. It comes when what God has spoken, whether things past or things present, when it's breathed on by the Holy Spirit because of intimacy. Because of intimacy, it becomes real, okay? Now, there's kids in the room, so I've got to be careful with this next analogy that I don't embarrass anyone or upset any parents here. But look at the analogy Jesus gave here. He said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Did you know that throughout the four, all four Gospels, there's not one time when we actually sit, read, read rather, and Jesus went into his room and shut the door and prayed to the Father? Did you know that? Where did he often pray? You can tell me. On the mountaintop. 
What is he saying then? Maybe there's a picture here. Maybe there's something that we need to dig a little deeper. You see, he says that when you meet the Father in the secret place, the Father's already there. He's already waiting. It's actually his. The secret place belongs to him. When we step into that place of intimacy and we know him in that place, something happens. Jesus said, And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, we could look, we could look at this from <laughs> a month of Sundays. I could preach about this. But the Bible talks so much about knowing God. In fact, Jesus said, many will come to me and said, Lord, I did this, this and that, all these miracles. And what is Jesus' response? I never knew you. Paul talks about it. He says, that I may know him, the fellowship of his suffering, and uh, being uh, conformed to the, fellowship, uh, to the likeness of his suffering, that I might uh, know the fellowship of his resurrection, might be raised in his resurrection life and power. He says, though, that I may know him. That word in the Greek, and we looked at this in the school, the Kingdom Living School, a couple of weeks ago. Paul says it as well in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 3 where he says uh, that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That word time and time again is the Greek word genosko. Genosko. It means that you would know by personal experience, that you would know intimately and personally. He says that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Why? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God that you might know, genosko, which passes knowledge, gnosis, head knowledge. Your head can only take you so far. You could, I'm sure you've probably met some religious folk who know this book, could quote two scriptures all day long, but maybe they're not walking in freedom. Maybe they don't really know the Lord. There's a big difference in knowing about someone and knowing someone personally. You could read a biography or an autobiography on someone's life, know every detail about them, feel like you know them and stand next to them in a queue or stand next to them out in the shops or on the street and you could be like, oh my gosh, that's such and such and you could know everything about them but they're going to look at you and say, depart from me for I never knew you. You get it? Get away from me, you stalker. I don't know who the heck you are. Think about that. Now, that word genosco is the same word where it says this at the start of Matthew, where it talks about Joseph and Mary. And it says, this is the part I was talking about. It, it says that Joseph didn't know his wife Mary until she had given birth to Jesus. So genosco is what's called an idiom. It's a Jewish, a Hebrew idiom for relation between a husband and a wife. Intimate knowledge of one another. Intimate knowledge. Now look at the example Jesus gives in Matthew 5. This is the relationship God wants. He wants you to go into your room and shut the door and be intimate with the Father there in the secret place. Now I know it might sound a bit like, or what, that's a bit of a weird analogy, but that's exactly what the Lord's talking about. Because who knows that God made marriage? Who knows that God created the things that married couples do, which I won't name because there's kids in the room. God designed it. It's not meant to be some weird thing or yucky thing. God made it. And who knows that everything God made in the natural speaks of a spiritual reality. 
And who knows that when a husband and wife come together, naturally speaking, they go into the room, they shut their door, they know each other in the secret place. Not before long, the bride comes out of there and she begins to show. She's showing. We use that word. Something took place in intimacy that begins to manifest openly. He who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. When we know God in that secret place, we come before him with the logos, with the rhema, the written word and what he's speaking. And we come before him and present ourselves to him humbly. We give up every right to have every right. God, I can't figure it out. I'm offended about this, but I lay it all down at your feet, whatever it might be. And we simply yield to him in the secret place. We make ourselves vulnerable to him in the secret place. Something amazing happens. Life comes in. The life of God comes inside of you and it makes what is written alive on the inside. Before I ever stepped out to pray for someone in the public place, in the open place, I first saw it in the secret place. It became real to me when no one was looking. You weren't there. In fact, many of you I probably didn't even know. I'm in the secret place reading the Word of God when Jesus says, you shall lay hands on the sick and they will recover if you believe. I'm reading this saying, Lord, yes. Lord, make your word my, the reality of my life. Help me to see reality the way that you see it. And yielding to him there in the secret place and not before long, I'm in the open place and he who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And then I see a sick person and I'm chasing him down the street, laying hands on them and I'm seeing God do miracles. Why? Because he made it real in the secret place. And through that process of intimacy, all the layers come off. I know it's a strange analogy, but it, it makes sense. The layers of unbelief, the layers of, well, I think this, or my denomination taught me that, or, well, I grew up thinking this way. There is no way but Jesus. There is no other way. He is the way. Does that make sense? All right. Cleansing of our hearts, changing of our mind, yielding of our bodies to him. In faith and faithfulness, it comes as we yield to him in the secret place. We allow his word to wash through us and to transform us in that place. Can't happen any other way. It's like a baby can't be conceived any other way, naturally speaking. All right, see you All right, I'm going to finish on that. You've been listening to a Zion Church podcast. For more information about Zion Church, go to zionchurch.info. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash zionchurchgc. And on Instagram, we're at zionchurchofficial.